2 Samuel chapter 14. It's on page 247 in the Pew Bible, if you'd like to use that resource. 2 Samuel 14. You might remember that it was about a month ago when uh, Pastor Mike was preaching on Mother's Day that he said, uh, Mother's Day at church is one of those days where uh, the, the pastor... Uh, you know, praises moms and, and thanks mom for all the, the great ways that they serve their families throughout the year. And then on Father's Day, he tells dads to get their act together. Um, <laughs> that's not really my desire today, though I hope that we will all become better fathers as a result of our study of God's Word today. But the text that we're looking at today does lend itself to that theme of dads getting their act together. Uh, because David is going to begin experiencing the pain, the painful consequences of his passive parenting, his permissive parenting, a laxity in discipling and fathering his children following his sin with Bathsheba years earlier. I think there's many times in our lives when when we start out strong as David did, there's great example of his taking an active leadership in his home in 1 Samuel 30 as he goes to rescue his wives and children for, for those that would seek to steal them away from him. But as the years wore on, and especially as David fell into grievous sins on his own, he became lax in his parenting. He became permissive. He became disengaged from the lives of his children. And in his later years, he really began to suffer the consequences of his laxity. So even as we celebrate Father's Day today, and it's good that we can celebrate Father's Day even on the Lord's Day, uh, let us be mindful of the lessons that our Father in heaven, our perfect Father, has for us in his word today. Second Samuel 14. Let me give you just a little bit of a backdrop. I've already alluded to David's sin with Bathsheba. Uh, the woman with whom he committed adultery three chapters earlier in chapter 11, and then compounding what was already uh, a heinous act against God and against this, this woman and her husband. David then tries to cover up his sin when he finds out that Bathsheba is pregnant. Her, her husband, Uriah, is one of David's most faithful, devoted, loyal soldier. He's been out fighting on the battlefield, so he's not the one that got his wife pregnant, and it will fast become evident. And so David actually orchestrates a scheme to get Uriah killed, and then as soon as the period of mourning is over, David marries Bathsheba as fast as he can, so that by the time the baby's born, no one really is the wiser as to what happened. But that chapter ends on this note, that the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. David thought he had all his bases covered. He thought that nobody would find out what he did. But God knew and God was displeased. And so in the next chapter, 2 Samuel 12, God sends Nathan the prophet, David's good friend, to confront David. And we considered what Proverbs says, that the wounds of a friend are faithful but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. And so Nathan, as hard as it was for him, David's good friend, he confronts David directly about a sin. He tells David a story and that David doesn't realize that he's actually talking about him, about a rich man, a poor man. Uh, David took the, the, you know, the rich man took the poor man's ewe lamb. And all this is a picture of what David had done to Uriah in stealing his wife, 
Bathsheba. And, and Nathan says, David, you're the man in the story. After David convicts himself, uh, he is, he's upset about what this rich man has done. He said he'll repay the poor man, you know, fourfold for the lamb that he stole, and then he deserves to die. And Nathan says, David, you're the man in that story. And here's what you did. And, and David, uh, to the grace of God and to David's credit, confesses his sins. He doesn't make any excuses. He says, behold, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan says, and the Lord has shown you mercy, you will not die. David deserved to die because of what he had done. But Nathan said, David, God has taken away your sin. And we need to understand that the only reason that sin was taken away by God in terms of its, its uh, full penalty upon David was because of David's greater descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would one day come and give his life as a sacrifice for all who would trust in him to have their sins forgiven. So God forgave David, but God said the consequences of what you did, there will be scars for what you have done, David, and you will pay a hefty price. You know, you're, you're not going to suffer eternally, you know, and I'm not even going to kill you physically for what you did, but you in your lifetime will suffer horrific consequences because of what you've done. The first consequence is that the child that was born to David and Bathsheba would die. But then the ongoing consequence is that uh, uh, violence and bloodshed would continue to characterize David's family's, uh, family for years to come. And in the next chapter, 2 Samuel 13, we see how this gruesomely plays out as David's son Amnon rapes his own half-sister Tamar, uh, the full sister of David's son Absalom. And we're told in verse 21 of chapter 13 that when King David heard of all these things, of what Amnon had done, he was very angry. But David doesn't do a thing about it. His anger does not lead to action. Tamar comes back, a shamed woman, to her her, uh, brother Absalom. He says, don't worry about it. You can stay here with me. And for two years, Absalom plots the murder of of his brother Amnon because David did not see justice done. And so uh, Absalom uh, conducts this plot and uh, Amnon uh, is killed on account of what he did to his sister Tamar. And uh, David, when he hears about this, weeps terribly over the loss of Amnon. And in the meantime, Absalom escapes to his maternal grandfather, Talmai, king of Geshur, where he remains for the next three years. And so that's kind of the scenario of everything that's kind of led to this point in chapter 14. Chapter 13 ends with this word in verse 39. And the spirit of the king, King David, longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. Then chapter 14, verse 1 says, Now Joab, the son of Zeruiah, that's David's sister, so Joab was David's nephew, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. So we get the sense from these two verses that that David is longing for Absalom. He's yearning for him because now he's comforted regarding Amnon's death and he wants to be reconciled to his son. And that's one way that these verses could be read. But there is an alternative Hebrew translation that I think better sets us up for the scene that's about to take place. And the reason is, is that when you read about that word for longing, that David longed for Absalom, the Hebrew word that is used there is the word kalah, which typically means 
not longed or yearned for, but it actually means to be exhausted, uh, to be used up, to be spent, or to fade away, or to abate. And the idea here is, is that um, David's going out for Absalom was not a positive thing, that his heart went out to him. The, the idea is that David was out to get Absalom. David was very angry. He was upset about what Absalom had done in murdering Amnon. And so if we take it in that sense, what we see is, uh, you could be translated this way, as it does in the Common English uh, Bible. It says, then the king's desire to go out after Absalom faded away because he had gotten over Amnon's death. So so there's that sense in which David was out to get Absalom, but now that he was comforted, now that time had passed after Amnon's death, David didn't feel that way anymore. His anger had abated. Uh, The New American Standard Bible Revised edition says, all that time the king, t- the king continued to mourn his son, Amnon, but his intention of going out against Absalom abated as he was consoled over the death of Amnon. So if 2 Samuel 13, 39 is understood in that sense, then 2 Samuel 14, 1 could be translated, Joab, son of Zeruiah, realized that the king's mind was on Absalom. The words go out aren't actually in that verse. It it simply talks about that Absalom was on his mind. There was a sense of, um, now what do I do with Absalom? What about Absalom? Uh, One translation says that the king was preoccupied with Absalom. What do I do with Absalom? Joab, David's military commander and nephew, was convinced that he knew the answer. You ever have that situation in your life? You're in this perplexing situation. Maybe it's even a parenting issue. You don't know how to to deal with your own children. And then someone comes along and they're convinced they know what you need to do. And and they're even happy to tell you that or take matters into their own hands. And, And Joab was never shy about doing this sort of thing. And as the ensuing chapters will show, Joab didn't care a whit about Absalom. Joab cared about the kingdom. But he knew that a public rift between King David and the crown prince, or the perceived crown prince, Absalom, was not a good thing because it could uh, pose not only to divide the kingdom, but it could be a direct threat to David and to the security of his throne. So Joab is confident that he knows what needs to be done. This situation needs to be resolved. And so he sets up a plot or devises a plan for Absalom's return. And that's what we see in this first section of 2 Samuel 14. Look with me, if you would, please, at verses 2 to 11. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Save me, O king. And the king said to her, What is your trouble? She answered, Alas, I am a widow. My husband is dead. And your servant had two sons, and they quarreled with one another in the field. There was no one to separate them, and and one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan has risen against your servant, and they say, Give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy the heir also. 
Thus they would quench my coal that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. And the king said to the woman, Go to your house and I will give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, On me be the guilt, my lord, the king, and on my father's house let the king and his throne be guiltless. The king said, If anyone says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall not touch you again. Then she said, Please let the king invoke the Lord your God, that the avenger of blood kill no more, and that my son may not be destroyed. He said, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. There's a lot here. We only have so much time to, to cover what's going on, but let me just cover the high points for you. Tekoa was a town about 10 miles from Jerusalem. And this woman had a reputation of being a wise person in that town. Uh, the citizens probably came to her for counsel or advice, perhaps even the town officials she served as a consultant to. We don't know, but she had this reputation for being wise. Plus, she lived far enough away that David wouldn't know who she was. And so if she disguised herself as a woman in mourning, David wouldn't know the difference. And so Joab, in a sense, uh, puts the words in her mouth. Not exactly what to say, but he says, tell David this kind of a story. See, David, uh, Joab knows that stories have a way of going right over David's head and he convicts himself in the midst of the story because he remembers what happened years earlier with Nathan. And so, so Joab is no dummy. He tells this woman what to do and she follows his advice. She presents her case to David. He's convinced it's a real case. Has no idea that it's made up. And it sets him up perfectly for the punchline. The difference is that when Nathan went to David, he had been sent by God. And God had sent Nathan to confront David about his sin. Whereas Joab had sent this woman to convince David to bring back his son. So there's more differences between the two accounts that we'll get to in just a moment. But once David decided the case in her favor, she wanted the verdict to be etched in stone. Uh, when David said, I'll take care of it, that wasn't good enough for her. So she pressed him a little further. And when David says that, you know, look, if anyone gives you any issues, bring him to me and I promise you he will not bother you again. But she's still not satisfied with that. So she presses David a third time, asking him to invoke the Lord's name, which David does. As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Now the woman had David right where she wanted him. It's time to deliver the punchline. Verses 12 to 17. Then the woman said, Please let your servant speak a word to my lord the king. And he said, Speak. And the woman said, Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself. There's the punchline. Inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again, we must all day die where like water spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life, and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Now I have come to say this to my lord the king, because the people have made me afraid, and your servant thought, I will speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his servant. For the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God. And your servant thought, 
The word of my Lord the King will set me at rest, for my Lord the King is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord your God be with you. So essentially, she's she's telling David, this is really a story about you. And, and, and uh, the dead cannot come back again, but it's not God's will that the banished ones stay that way, and you need to bring your son home because you're damaging yourself, your family, and your kingdom by having him live away. And she essentially convinces David that, that he'll do the right thing in doing this for the people of Israel. But the, again, the punchline is, in verse 13, for in giving this decision, the king convicts himself. Now, you might remember Nathan's punchline back in chapter 12 was, you are the man. And so this doesn't come across, across quite as directly, quite as strong as that, but the result is the same. David decides the case in a way that convicts himself as being in the wrong. Both Nathan, back in chapter 12, and the woman of Tekoa here, um, are both effective in that they get King David engaged in their stories, and through their stories get King David to convict himself. But here's the difference. The purpose of Nathan's parable was to rouse the king's conscience as opposed to his feelings. Whereas the woman of Tekoa's story, as prompted by Joab, was designed to rouse David's feelings as opposed to his conscience. Right? So David has certain feelings, you know, for Bathsheba, Uriah, all these things back in chapter 12. But Nathan wanted David to see his sin in that. David, I need to tap into your conscience because what you did is wrong, regardless of how you felt at the time. But now, Absalom needs to be dealt with. He has murdered his brother. He's taken justice into his own hands. He's been, he's been on the run. He's been, been avoiding accountability for his actions. But now the woman of Tekoa is, is trying to rouse David's feelings for his sons as opposed to his conscience doing what ought to be done. The case that Nathan presented to David was like a mirror. It, it was holding up David's sin in front of his face for him to see exposing David's sin for what it was. The case presented by the woman of Tekoa was was not really parallel with the sin of Absalom because in her story, her two sons got into a quarrel. They got into a fight that got out of control and the one ended up killing the other. It was really a case of, of manslaughter. Whereas Absalom's sin against Amnon was one of murder. It was homicidal revenge. He had been nursing for two years in his heart a spirit of hatred toward Amnon and planning for the day when he would get his vengeance. So they were different in that regard. It was a premeditated act that he had been thinking about for two years. So we see that, you know, this woman is considered wise, but there's not a lot of spiritual wisdom going on here in this chapter. What we do see is a lot of secular wisdom. We see planning wisdom on the part of Joab for devising this scheme in the first place. It was a pretty good plan as far as it goes. And then we see persuasive wisdom on the part of the woman. She is able to get David fully engaged with her story. It's like she has a a hook in his nose leading him right along where she wants him, and then she delivers the punchline. But then we also see some perceptive wisdom on the part of David, as he begins to clue in as to who is behind this whole setup. Look at verses 18 to 24. Then the king answered the woman, do not hide from me anything I ask you. And the woman said, 
let my lord the king speak. The king said, is the hand of Joab with you in all this? The woman answered and said, as surely as you live, my lord the king, one cannot turn to the right or to the left from anything that my lord the king has said. It was your servant Joab who commanded me. It was he who put all these words into the mouth of your servant in order to change the course of things. Your servant Joab did this. But my Lord has wisdom like the wisdom of the angel of God to know all things that are on the earth. Then the king said to Joab, Behold, now I grant this. Go, bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king, and that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. You notice how the woman of Tekoa and Joab are kissing up to the king, <laughs> right? He's still the king. They, they know they've pushed his buttons. They know they've, they've pushed the envelope here. They do not want to incur his disfavor lest they lose their heads in the process. But King David gives in. He's convinced the right thing is to bring Absalom home. But he makes it clear that Absalom is to dwell in his own house and he is not to come into the presence of of the king. The last statement in verse 24 emphasizes this by repeating the very same elements that are given in King David's command. He's to stay in his own house and he's not to come into my presence. And then it says, so Absalom stayed in his own house and he did not come into the king's presence. David didn't punish his son, but neither did he fully forgive him. Aren't you glad that God doesn't deal with us that way? David kept his son at an arm's length, so to speak. Colossians 1 says, We were far away from God. We were separated from Him because of our evil thoughts and actions. And yet, what did God do? The Bible says that He reconciled us through the death of His Son, Jesus Christ, who took the penalty for our sins. Listen, the Bible says in Colossians 1 that God did this so that He might welcome us into His presence, clean and pure, without fault and blame. That's wonderful news. Scripture says that, that God did this to welcome us in His presence. He reconciled us to Himself so much that, so that we read in Romans 8 that nothing in all creation, nothing in the past, present, or future, uh, no principality, no other power, nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In commenting on King David's dealings with his son Absalom, John Woodhouse wrote, David could not bring himself to treat Absalom either as a murderer and therefore have him executed or as innocent and therefore welcome him back. David's scheme was designed to avoid the issue. If Absalom could be kept away from the king, the king could once again avoid the difficult task of deciding what should be done about his son. And sometimes that seems to be the easiest thing to do. You know what? I don't know how to deal with this, 
So I'm just not going to deal with it at all. I don't want to see him. I don't want him to have anything to do with me. Out of sight, out of mind. I don't know what to do with Absalom. David's indecisiveness in middle-of-the-road approach leaves things unresolved, in limbo, and this not only exacerbated the situation, but also exasperated his son. So after his return, we see next his recalcitrance. The fact that Absalom can be one difficult guy to deal with. Look at verses 25 to 32. Now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. Imagine. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him, he would cut it. He, he weighed the hair of his head, 200 shekels by the king's weight. There were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him. And he sent a second time, but Joab would not come. Then he said to his servants, See, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has some barley there. Go set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent word to you, come here that I might send you to the king to ask, Why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to be there still. Now therefore let me go into the presence of the king, and if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. Without a doubt, Absalom was a force to be reckoned with. For one thing, he had everything going for him in terms of looks. Scripture says that there was nobody else in the entire nation of Israel that was more handsome than Absalom. And people praised him. They talked everywhere about how good-looking he was. From head to toe, there was no blemish in him. That is to say that outwardly he was perfect as far as his body was concerned anyway. Even his hair was magnificent. Every spring when he would cut it, he he would weigh it. Do you weigh your hair? He would weigh his hair, and then, listen, he would publish the results. So this is something you'd see on Netflix, with millions watching. Even Absalom was impressed by how good-looking he was. I thought of that old Mac Davis song. Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. I can't wait to look in the mirror. I get better looking each day. To know me is to love me. I must be a heck of a man. Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble, but I'm doing the best that I can. Not only was Absalom good looking, but he had a beautiful daughter too. Her name was Tamar. It's interesting he had three sons, at least at this point in his life, but there's no mention of their names. I don't think it's because they were ugly per se. I think it was simply because the attention is being drawn to his beautiful daughter Tamar. His daughter Tamar was beautiful, just like Absalom's sister Tamar, who had been raped by Amnon. And so this is like a reminder, oh yeah, that's what set in motion everything we're reading about now. 
the gooses come home to roost. Absalom was a real celebrity. He may have been shunned by the king, but he was praised by everybody else. He was popular, he knew it, and he used his celebrity status to his advantage. After all, he was not used to be being told no. What Absalom wanted, Absalom got. The sense of entitlement is another negative consequence of permissive parenting. When parents never say no to their children's demands, they don't regulate their behavior, you'll find that their kids go on the limits of acceptable behavior in order to get their way. And when things become stressful, when it comes to a situation that the kids don't like, even children who become adults, they become aggressive because they will not take no for an answer. And that's precisely what happens with Absalom. When, when Joab doesn't respond to him once, Joab doesn't respond to him twice, Joab doesn't respond to him a third time, so Absalom says, go set Joab's field on fire. Can you imagine having a neighbor that did that? If you ignored their text a few times or their phone call, they just set your property on fire? Remember, too, that Joab is the one who initiated Absalom's return in the first place. If anything, Absalom should have been grateful to Joab, but instead he becomes aggressive and demands more. So outwardly, Absalom looks perfect, but inwardly, he lacks character. In fact, if you look at the description given of Absalom, all that's said about him is that he was very handsome, he had a fantastic set of hair, And he had a growing family, which included a beautiful daughter. But nothing is said about his character or integrity. Have you noticed those are the kind of things that a lot of people talk about today? How a person looks, how big their family is, how impressive they are. It's easy for us to be impressed by image more than substance. It's easy for us to be taken in by a person's looks rather than his or her character. We see it all the time in Hollywood. We certainly see it in politics. But sadly, we even see it in the church. But when Paul lists the qualifications for church leaders, he says nothing about a person's looks, at least on the outside. He talks about their character on the inside. Paul The Holy Spirit, through Paul, emphasizes character over charisma, personal holiness over public giftedness. We need to be careful that we don't fall prey to the Absalom trap. It's easy to do, even for the best among us. Remember when God had to remind Samuel, right? When when Samuel went to anoint David in the first place, he wasn't sure which son of David it was that was going to be king. And he looked at the oldest son, Eliab, and looked, man, he's tall, good-looking, strong. Surely this is the one. The Lord said, no, I've rejected him. Samuel, the Lord doesn't, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. With God, character comes first, and God wants that to be a priority for us as well. And this brings us to the final verse of 2 Samuel 14. Having considered Absalom's return and his recalcitrance, the fact that he's so headstrong and difficult to deal with, we now read about his restoration. And and we could put that word restoration in quotes. Verse 33. Then Joab went to the king and told him, And he summoned Absalom. 
So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. That's it. I don't know about you, but this kind of strikes me as a cold and impersonal reunion. We're told that Absalom came to the king, not to David, not to his father, but to the king. Let us remember it's been five years, at least, since they last saw each other. Absalom had been dwelling in his own house for two years since his return, and he had been gone three years before that to Talmai, the king of Geshur. So it had been five years at least since they had seen each other. Five years. You would think that if you had seen an estranged family member after five years, especially if it was your adult son, that there would be tears, that there would be weeping. But there's none of that. There's no weeping. There's no hugging. In fact, based on the account itself, there aren't even words exchanged between the two of them. Even the kiss seems to be one of formal acceptance rather than fatherly affection. Again, aren't you glad that God doesn't deal with us that way as his children? In love, God redeems us. In love, God disciplines us. In love, God fully takes away our sin. In love, God restores us to himself, not partially, not coolly, not keeping us at an arm's distance, but completely and fully. In David's encounter with Absalom, there is no mention of Absalom's murder of Amnon, his brother. There is no rebuke for his recent act of arson destroying a neighbor's property. There is no move on David's part at all to deal with his son's sin so that true reconciliation could take place and he can be truly restored and things can be truly resolved so that they can move on. As the next few chapters will show, David's failure to deal with his son will lead to further harm and heartache in proportions David probably never thought would happen. Yes, passive parenting leads to painful consequences. With this in mind, let me close with four brief points of application. You can jot these down if you'd like. Number one, there is only one perfect parent, and that is our Father in heaven. There is only one perfect parent. And that is our Father in heaven. The best of men are men at best. Even the greatest dads still make grave mistakes. Our Father in heaven is the only Father who will never, ever disappoint us. And the good news is that every single person who believes on Christ as his or her Savior is adopted into God's family and becomes the child of this perfect Father. I love that Chris Tomlin song, He is a Good good father. And he can be your father if you trust in Christ, his son, to save you. So if you haven't already done that, would you confess your sins, acknowledge your need for salvation today? Admit that you are estranged from God because of your sin, but know that God has sent his own son to resolve that issue for you because Jesus fully paid the penalty for your sin so that you can be completely forgiven and reconciled to God? The gift is yours if you will but receive it. And that's all faith is. It's simply taking God at his word and acting on it. That is God's gift to you. There's only one perfect parent, and that's our Father in heaven. Number two, 
Children are still responsible for their choices. Children, whether you're young children in the home or whether you're adult children sitting here today, don't play the blame game because you'll end up losing. Shifting the blame did not work for Adam and Eve in the garden, and it will certainly not work for you. Each of us are accountable to God for our own actions and choices we make. Our parent imperfections did not cause us to sin. We choose to sin. And excusing our sin or blaming it on our parents or somebody else not only wrecks our lives in the end, but it robs us of the joy that God wants to give us that comes through confession. Ephesians 1, 6. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Now, David exclaimed in Psalm 32, How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit is no deceit. So don't deceive yourself by playing the blame game. Uh, by shoving your sin onto someone else, because if you confess your sins, if you agree with God that what you have done is wrong, that you stand in need of His grace, God will graciously give that to you. The Bible says, therefore, humble yourself under God's mighty hand that He may exalt you in due time. But if you don't confess that you've done anything wrong, if you're always shifting the blame onto someone else, then that not only will wreck your life, it will rob you of the joy that comes only through forgiveness. And to be forgiven of your sin, you must confess your sin. First John 1 John 1.9 If we confess our sins, agree with God, calling it what it is, God is faithful and just because of Christ to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So why would you want to withhold from yourself the joy of such salvation? Don't play the blame game. Children are responsible for their choices. Number three, having experienced the grace of God, extend grace to others. Forgive your parents for their failures. Show your kids grace when they fail. That doesn't mean that you excuse their sin, that you become a passive or permissive parent, not at all. It means disciplining them in love. Set clear rules, follow through with consequences for disobedience, but always make sure that you address the behavior and don't attack the person. Parents, we also should admit when we make mistakes, when we overreact, when we set a poor example, when we make wrong decisions, when we display bad attitudes, it's always important to let your kids see the love, even in the midst of your failure. And show your kids mercy now and then by not giving what they deserve, but then be sure to point them to Jesus as the ultimate example of God's grace and mercy toward us. So, there's only one perfect parent, that's God the Father. Children are still responsible for their choices. And having received God's grace, let us extend grace. And the fourth point of application, have a happy Father's Day. That's not an empty wish. Because if you have the God of all grace as your Father in heaven, then you have every reason to celebrate. Let's pray. Father, thank you 
for teaching us more important lessons from your word. Oh, we praise you that you are a good, good father. Our father in heaven is perfect in every way. And we thank you that you joyfully become the father of everyone who comes to you through Jesus Christ, your son, in whom we have forgiveness for our sins. Lord, I pray whatever family dynamics might be going on in our homes right now, or as we look at our past or our present, I pray that we would remember, as Adoniram Judson, the great missionary, did in the difficult times, that the future is as bright as the promises of God. Let us cling to those promises and celebrate the fatherhood we have in you. For it's in the name of your Son we pray. Amen.